Yes, he is. Good morning, church family. And it is such an honor to be here on this Sunday morning to to share with you this morning. Um, So many of you uh, sitting out here today have invested so much into my life. You know, taught me in Sunday school and and RAs and and Wednesday night. And it is is just a privilege to, to, to come back and share with you. Uh, share with you today. Um, I just, I just thank you so much for your continued prayers and and this support and the encouragement that that y'all have given me in um, in my time in college and also through uh, my ministry at, at uh, Faith Independent Baptist Church in Union Springs. But I'm so happy to be here today. If you have a copy of uh, your Bible with you this morning, would you open it to uh, the book of First Corinthians, chapter 15? We're going to be uh, reading verses 1 through 10 this morning. And, you know, I always like to, to honor the public reading of God's Word by, by standing. So, so if you can, would you please stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture? Starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the word you've given us this morning. I pray that you, you speak through me um, to, to faithfully proclaim your word this morning. Lord, I pray for our, uh, our minds and our, ho- and our hearts to be focused this morning, and may you be pleased with our worship efforts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, when I was, when I was growing up, my dream job that, that I wanted to do, I wanted to be a NASCAR driver. You know, that's always been something that that I've wanted to do. I love driving. You know, when I was growing up, I had one of those those little toy plastic cars that that I would drive around the yard. Um, You know, I I was probably the only eight or 10-year-old that drove home from Point Mallard after a baseball game. But, you know, I love driving. And not only that, I like to go fast, too. So the only thing that fit me, I thought, was being a NASCAR driver. So the only way I could get close enough to fulfilling that dream of mine was when we would go to the beach as a family and we got to go ride go-karts. Um, so that, there was this one specific trip we made to, to Panama City Beach and, and, and we got into go-karts. And, you know, I was young and so my dad and my sister would always ride the doubles together. And, you know, they always let the doubles go before the singles and, and I would be in front of my mom. My mom would be behind me. So, um, my goal was, all right, I got to catch up to my dad and sister. And my other goal was, don't let my mom pass me. So, you know, they, they strap you in. And, and all I saw in my tunnel vision was the green flag at Talladega. Like, let's go. I'm going to win this race. And 
we started the race, and, and, and what I started noticing about halfway through the first lap was, man, people started passing me. You know, I'm going to be honest, that tore me up. That tore me up that, that people started passing me, and, and I said, all right, well, I, I may not catch my dad and my sister, but my mom's not going to pass me. So on lap two, I look over my shoulder, and here comes my mom. My mom passed me on the go-karts. I still believe to this day, that was over 10 years ago, I got rigged and I got put in the slowest go-kart on the track, but my mom beat me in go-karts, and I'm going to be honest with you, that tore me apart. I probably ruined the rest of the trip because I was so distraught about my mom beating me in go-karts. It was just a great shot to my pride. It was. It was a shot to my pride that my mom beat me in go-karts. But you see, Christianity, that is rightfully understood, is a great shot to our pride. It's one, of the, it's one of the greatest insults to our moral achievements because what Christianity's telling you and what Christianity's telling me is that we're so messed up. We're so sinful. We're so dead in our sin that it took nothing less than the death of God's own son in order to save us, to make us fit for heaven. You know, in other words, we're not people who can strap up by the boots and do good on our own. We don't have it in us. We don't have it in us. And you see, you may, have, you may have been around the church nine months before you were born. You know, maybe you've been around here your whole life. But, you know, I, I still think it's important for us to, you know, really unpack and, and understand the fundamentals of our faith. You know, the essentials of the Christian faith. That way, if you receive it or if you reject it, you can make sure that you're receiving or rejecting the right thing. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to just tap into the basics of Christianity and, and the essentials of the Christian faith. We're going to do so by asking three questions. What is it? Is it true? And then will you believe it? Sounds simple enough, right? First of all, what is it? What is Christianity? Well, Christianity at its core is not a new moral code. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. You see, it's not what our culture is telling us is what's right to do and what's wrong to do. You know, cultural Christianity has, has taken a sweep across our country. You know, what the world does, we do, and it's okay. It's acceptable. But you see, it, it's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Because you see, there was a work. There, there was something that was done outside of you and outside of me. You know, that's not where our hope is. It's not in ourselves. It's in Christ. It's not about what we do for God, but about what God has done for us. But you see, religious people almost always want to reverse this. They want to reverse this, and, and you know, they look at God like some kind of bad boss of a sales team, you know, where it's all about, what have you done for me lately? All right, last quarter was good. What have you done for me lately? You see, the key component of religion is behavior. It's behavior. But the key component of Christianity that's different because the key component of Christianity is grace. It is grace. You see, by this standard of religion, my dog Annie, it, she's very religious. She's very religious. You know, she, she, never, she never cusses. She never watches dirty movies. She never gets drunk. She never does drugs. When I tell her to sit, she sits. When I tell her to lay down, she lays down. And even when I ask her if she'd rather go to Auburn or die, she'll roll over and play dead. I mean, she gets it. She understands. She is very religious according to that standard of religion. 
But you see, religion says if you're good, then God will accept you. You just have to pull off a certain amount of good deeds. If you're good, then God will accept you. But you see, Christianity says you're accepted in Christ, now go and be good. Or you're accepted in Christ, now go and make an impact. It's a big difference there. You know, Jesus taught it's real hard for religious people to receive forgiveness, you know, not because of God's unwillingness to forgive them, but because of their unwillingness to recognize that they need forgiveness. In fact, Dane Ortland, he said it like this. He said, the deepest distinction among human beings is, is not between the bad and the good, but between those who know they are bad and those who do not. Yet strangely, it's not the blatantly wicked who have the greatest difficulty seeing this, but the carefully obedient. So you see, Paul, who's an apostle in the early church, he's a leader in the early church. He sits down to write this letter to the church of Corinth. Now, if you didn't know, there's all kinds of things messed up going on in the church of Corinth. And he gets to chapter 15 in this letter, and he says, I want to remind you what Christianity is all about. And he said, and at its core, Christianity is all about grace. Look at verse 3. He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance. That means that's the most foundational. That means without this, everything falls apart. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins. Every single person in the church ought to say amen to that right there. I'm going to say it again. I've got to wake you up this morning. Christ died for our sins. There you go. Had to make sure you're still awake on me out there. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's grace right there. You see, Christ did something we could not do. It's not about what we brought to the table. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Ernest Gordon, he was a Scottish prisoner of war by the Japanese in World War II. And he and others were forced to build a railroad through the jungle. Now, these were just horrific conditions. I mean, it was extremely hot. You know, they, they barely had any food. They barely had any water. They, they wore almost nothing. I mean, it was just horrific conditions. And, and, and he gets to this point while he's building this railroad, they get to a checkpoint. And at these checkpoints, the officers, you know, they count the tools and they make sure everyone's still there. And, and, and they get to this checkpoint and the officers count the tools and he notices that a shovel is missing. A shovel. And one of the officers, he just started screaming. I mean, he went ballistic. He got very upset. And he said, the person who stole this shovel better step forward right now. He lined the men up. He said, whoever stole it, step forward. Nobody did. He said, all right, well, then all die. Every one of you are going to die. Finally, one man stepped forward and he said, I took it. I took it. One of the officers in charge, he, he went over to him and, and began to beat him and beat him and beat him in front of these other men until he died. He beat him to death. Not long after that, they did another count on the tools and when they recounted, not a shovel was missing. Not a shovel was missing. You see, they had miscounted the first time. Now, when, when these other prisoners heard this, they were shocked that an innocent man was willing to die to save everyone else. Don't you see that? I mean, what a picture of the gospel. What a picture of the work of Christ, and, and yet there's a difference in there. You see, in the World War II story, 
we see an innocent man die for innocent men. You know, they, they didn't steal a shovel. They, they just miscounted. An innocent man died for innocent men, but you see with the gospel story, oh, that's different. Because you see with the gospel story, we see an innocent man die for guilty men. You see, for you and me, there really was a missing shovel. We really did sin, and we deserve the punishment of God. But Christ, the Son of God, he stepped in our place. He stepped in our place. He died for us on the cross. So you may be sitting there today saying, well, what did Christ do for us? You hear, you, you hear us talking about it. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. What did Christ do for us? That's what he did for us right there. He died in our place on the cross. But notice he didn't remain dead. Look at verse 4. He continued on. He said he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Dear friends, listen to me. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Everything hinges on this. There's no reason to sing. There's no reason to worship. This doesn't make us better people. There is no resurrection. It's all in vain. It's all in vain if there is no resurrection. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul goes on to argue in verse 17. Look at this just a few verses later in verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, well, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. You see, Paul is thinking about the alternative. He's saying, listen, if Christ is not risen from the dead, he wouldn't be our savior. And here's why. Think with me for a moment. The power and the penalty of sin is death. And on the cross, Jesus conquered the power of sin, which is death. He paid the penalty of sin, which is death. Therefore, if he remained dead, if he didn't resurrect from the dead, that would only prove that he didn't conquer the power of sin and he didn't pay the penalty of sin. So as Paul says in verse 15, if he's not resurrected from the dead, then we're still in our sin. Our faith is futile. We think we're okay, but we're not. We think we've been forgiven, but we're not. Our sin is still on us and therefore the punishment of our sin is still on us. Or as John three thirty six says, the wrath of God remains on us. But... But if Jesus rose from the dead, if he truly resurrected, and that's a game changer. That changes everything. So the big question for us is, is, did he in fact resurrect from the dead? Is there any good reason to believe that this is true? That leads to number two, the second question. Is Christianity true? Well, it all hinges on the resurrection, so we got to ask, is the resurrection true? Because if the resurrection is true, then yes, Christianity is true. So Paul gives us three pieces of evidence for the resurrection. First of all, the scriptures. He points to the scriptures. He says twice, one time in verse 3, one time in verse 4, according to the scriptures. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. You see, this is the Old Testament he, he's referring to. Now, the Old Testament has 60 major prophecies concerning the future coming of the Messiah. And long before Jesus ever entered the sea, long before Jesus ever became the one who was going to be the Messiah, we have all these prophecies, 60 major ones. And so here's the kicker. Jesus fulfilled every one of them. Every one of them. He fulfilled them perfectly. And in Micah, I'm just going to give you a, just give you a few examples. 
In Micah, it said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, where was Jesus born? Celebrated every Christmas. He was born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah, it said that Jesus would be born of a, born of a virgin. In the Apostles' Creed, what do we call her? We call her not just Mary, we say born of the virgin Mary. Psalm 22 describes crucifixion of the coming Messiah. You know, I find that very interesting, a lot of the fact that that, that was written 800 years before crucifixion was ever used as a means of capital punishment. And Zechariah, it said that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Matthew 27, it says Judas betrayed Jesus. And guess how much you betrayed him for? 30 pieces of silver. Two mathematicians try to sit down and, and, and calculate it out and, and try to see what the probability of, of one man only fulfilling eight of these prophecies would be. And he said the likelihood of one man only fulfilling eight of these prophecies. Now remember, we said there were 60 major ones. And he said the likelihood of one man only fulfilling eight of these prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's right in the number one with 17 zeros beside it. And you know, really to, to kind of paint a picture, they, they, they come up with an illustration to, to help with that. They said, just imagine the state of Texas. State of Texas being covered with silver dollars. Okay, state of Texas is a big state. He said, not only are they covering the state of Texas, they're stacked two feet high. All right, you got the state of Texas stacked two feet high. He said, just imagine one man being thrown into the middle of Texas. One of those coins is marked with a star. One man thrown into the middle of Texas. He's blindfolded, and he has to randomly walk down, walk around, and, and bend down and pick up one of the coins. And they said the likelihood of him picking up the coin to have the star on it would be more likely than one man fulfilling eight of these prophecies. Dear friends, Jesus fulfilled all 60 of them. You see, Jesus isn't just an add-on to the Old Testament. Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. When, when it was written, it all pointed to him. It was all about him. In fact, we often look at the Old Testament characters, but you know, these aren't merely people to emulate. These aren't people to be like. Well, you need to be like David. You need to be like Daniel. You need to be like Jonah. You need to be like Moses. They actually foreshadowed Jesus. Now, Jesus is the, is the greater David who didn't just conquer the great giant of, David, of, of Goliath. He conquered the great giant of sin and death for all God's people. Jesus is the greater Daniel who, who wasn't just spared from the lions but was thrown to that which was worth more than lions, the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus is the, is the greater Jonah who spent not only three days in the belly of a great fish but spent three days in the belly of the earth and then he resurrected on the third day. Jesus is the greater Moses who not only taught us the law of God, he kept the law of God on our behalf. He fulfilled the law of God on our behalf. You see where the Old Testament characters failed? Jesus did not. He obeyed his heavenly father perfectly, even until death on a cross. And so Paul says you got the scriptures. Number two, the second piece of evidence is the empty tomb. You know, when Paul says Jesus rose from the dead, he implies there was an empty tomb. And what's interesting, even the opponents of Christianity in that day, they never deny there wasn't an empty tomb. They'll all acknowledge, yes, there was an empty tomb. And think about this, his followers. Jesus' followers, they were absolute cowards 
at his arrest and crucifixion. And then in just a matter of days, they become some of the most courageous men this world had ever seen. Just about every one of them gave their lives to a torturous death because they followed Jesus. So you gotta ask the question. When you hear that, you gotta ask the question, what happened? What happened in those matter of days that, that took these cowards and made them so courageous? You gotta ask what happened. Well, they said we saw a resurrected Lord. We saw Jesus after, after he was dead, we saw him alive again. Okay, that makes sense. You know, you see a, a, a resurrected Jesus and he claims to be the savior of the world and he says, follow me. Suddenly you're gonna wanna follow him, even until the death. I mean, you're, you're all in. So really the burden of, of proof is on the skeptic and the non-believer to really come up with an alternate story that makes almost as much sense or as much sense as this. And, and the only thing they could come up with is that the disciples stole the body and then they hid the body. But I gotta ask you, just using reason and logic, what kind of sense does that make? Why would they wanna do it to become rich and famous? Didn't work out too well for them, did it? You see, there comes a time in my life, if I think I'm gonna be rich and famous, or all my wildest dreams come true and I go through this stealing the body and hiding the body, it, there comes a point, if, if I start to get beaten with rocks or thrown into prison or stoned to death, I'm gonna call a 30. I'm gonna call time out. I'm gonna say, listen, hold on. I'll show you where the body is. You know, please don't hit me with another rock. You see, people are willing to die for a lie they think it's the truth. No one's going to die for a lie if they know it's a lie. And lastly, Paul points to the eyewitnesses. He points to the scriptures, he points to the empty tomb, and he points to the eyewitnesses. After naming people who had seen Jesus, he says in verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. 500 people. That's a thousand eyeballs. That's a lot of folks looking at the resurrected Jesus right there. Now, how could you convince an entire crowd, 500 people to say, you need to believe this. You need to buy in. And notice right there it says, at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, go ask them. You know these people, go ask them. They'll tell you. You see, we're not basing our faith on some abstract claims of a person, but on good, reasonable objective evidence, evidence that demands a verdict. And that leads to my third question. What's your verdict? Or will you believe the gospel? Let me ask you, will you believe the gospel and allow it to transform your life? It has the power to do that. Will you allow it to transform your life? It's been said the gospel, which literally means good news, it's only good news if it gets there in time. Well, guess what? It's gotten to you. It's gotten to you in time. Question is, what are you going to do with it? Now, you may decide to reject this message. You may decide to reject the gospel. But you cannot ever say that you did not know it. Because you have. You see, if you reject the message this morning, don't fool yourself into believing that, that you're rejecting it out of, 
out of reason and logic because you're a reasonable person and you adhere to, to reason, not blind faith. Uh-uh. If you choose not to believe, it's not because you don't have enough evidence to believe, it's because you don't have enough desire to believe. C.S. Lewis, one of his more famous quotes, he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. No importance. What are we doing here if this is false? He said, but if it's true, then it is of infinite importance. Then he goes on to say, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. You see that? The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So let me ask you a question. If you're being honest this morning, are you treating this as though it is moderately important? Maybe you said, I made that decision later on in life. Yeah, that's the number one excuse I hear in college. The number one excuse I hear in my fraternity. Well, these are my fun years. I don't have time to pursue a relationship with Jesus. I don't have time for this Jesus stuff. These are my fun years. I'm gonna push it off until, until I graduate. Then they graduate and they say, I'm gonna wait till I get married. And then they get married and they say, I'm gonna wait till I have kids and it just keeps getting pushed off and pushed off. I mean, what kind of arrogance is that? Who in here can say that they're promised tomorrow? Nobody. So don't buy into that. Don't buy into that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation if you were to harden not your heart. If you were to trust the gospel, if you were to believe the gospel this morning, first thing you would have to do is admit that you're a sinner. You must admit and recognize that, that not only is this world broken, but you're broken. You're part of the problem. The Bible says that, that our sin is so dreadful and, and so ugly and so nasty that it took nothing less than the death of God's own son in order to do away with it. So even if you don't see your sin that way, you must understand that's how God sees it and he'll punish us for it. But notice he doesn't leave us in despair. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die that death, to take on the punishment for our sin, to absorb it like a sponge and to extinguish it. And if you knew that, if you knew that he would do that, he would take the brokenness that you may be experiencing in your life and he would make it beautiful. It's what he does. It's what he does. It's what he did with Paul. You may say, well, he can't do that with me. Listen to this. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why is that, Paul? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see where he went there? He didn't go to his track record. He went to the grace of God. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He embraced his position, not based on his merit, but based on the merit of another given to him by grace. Just imagine this. When Paul said that he persecuted the church of God, he literally persecuted the church of God. He would show up at people's homes and, and he would drag out men and women. He would show up at churches and drag them out. And he would, he would beat them to a pulp till they were bleeding profusely. Broken bones. He would take big stones and he would crush their skulls. He hated the church. By that token, he hated God. 
Could you just imagine the remorse and the regret that he lived with? That he would lay his head down at night and, and these images of these men and women would just flash through his head. These images uh, of these men and women reaching up to him and shaking and, and pleading for mercy saying, please stop. Perhaps looking in his peripheral and seeing the children of these men and women crying out for him to stop doing this to their mama and daddy. Yet he continued until he watched them take their last breath right in front of his eyes. And yet, Jesus appeared to him. Jesus saved him. Jesus forgave him. You know, Paul wanted to put an end to Jesus. Jesus wasn't willing to put an end to Paul, nor is he willing to put an end to you right now in this day. Do you think it's by accident that you're sitting here today? You may think, Heath, you don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't. But God does. And we know his very word tells us if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be. And listen to me this morning. That's not to say that your sin is small. That's to say that the cross is big. It's big enough to pay for any sin. It's big enough to purchase any sinner. So that's why Jesus says, come. He says, come to me. So I'm here today to say, let the liar come to Jesus. Let the thief come to Jesus. Let the religious hypocrite come to Jesus. Let the Pharisee come to Jesus. Let the one who has been unfaithful come to Jesus. Let the adulterer come to Jesus. Let the, let the religious hypocrite, let, let the drug addict, let the alcoholic, let them come to Jesus. Let, let the persecuted and the persecutor come to Jesus. Let the abused and the abuser come to Jesus. Let us all come to Jesus, First Baptist Church, Decatur, Alabama. And you think, how? How's that possible? You know how? Because Jesus paid it all. He didn't just pay part of it. He just didn't pay a portion of it. He paid it all. Every slander, every sin, every evil deed, every sin that you've committed, every sin that, that you've forgotten you've committed, every future sin, he paid it all. And I'm here to announce to you and declare by the authority of the word of God that Jesus paid it all. You may say, well, how do we know? How do we really know he paid it all? Because he said it is finished. And if it be finished, then I'm complete in him. And I don't have the righteousness that comes from the law. I don't have the righteousness that comes by good works. I have a righteousness that comes by grace through faith in Christ, period. So you may be sitting out there today and you're just completely lost. You don't know where to go, where to turn. You know, I heard a story about a young boy who was in that same situation. He, he was hanging out with the wrong friends. He, he was getting in trouble with the law, and, and he was just going down the road to destruction. So one day he went in to see the pastor of his church, and, and he said, Pastor, I just don't see what I'm supposed to do. I don't see my purpose. I, I'm always getting in trouble. I, I'm just going down the wrong road. The pastor said, I want you to do two things. Number one, he said, I want you to start reading your Bible. He said, really get into it deep and let God lead you through his word. 
Second of all, he said, I want you to go down to the art gallery on Main Street and look at the painting of Jesus hanging on the cross. Now, he had heard about this painting and, and the impact it's had on people's lives, but he, he'd just not gone to see it yet. So as soon as he left that office, he went straight down to that art gallery. And when he walked in, the, the lady working said, you know, can I help you look for anything? He said, yeah, I'm here to see the Jesus painting. Where is it at? I want to see it. She pointed and said, it's, it's just at the end of the hall. So he went down there, and, and when he saw it, he could tell it was a painting of Jesus hanging on the cross. But he, he just didn't feel that impact that he was expecting to feel. He, did, he didn't really see what the big deal was. So he, he called that lady over, and he, he said, ma'am, I, I just don't see it. I mean, why, why are so many people talking about how this painting has changed their lives? I, I, I just don't get it. I don't feel it. She looked at him and said, why don't you get a little bit closer? Got a little closer and still nothing. He said, I still don't see it. I still don't see what, what God wants me to do and, and, and where he's leading me. She said, how about you get a little bit closer and a little bit lower? Before he knew it, he found himself kneeling. And when he looked up, Everything became clear to him. Everything had, had finally come into perspective. And dear friends, listen to me this morning. Until you kneel at the cross of Christ, you won't be able to make sense of where you're going, what you're doing, or what God has for your life. So won't you this morning come to the cross? Won't you this morning turn your eyes upon Jesus? and allow him to transform your life. Father, we thank you so much for your love and, and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come to you this morning. Lord, there is, there is brokenness that's all around us. There, there is hopelessness. Lord, if there's somebody in this room right now who, who has never experienced salvation and, and, and this just stood out to them today, Lord, I pray that that, that today would be the day that they would lay it all down at the cross of Christ and say, I surrender my life to you. Lord, we can't go through this life alone. We need your guidance. We need your love. We need your forgiveness. Lord, we, we need to understand that, that we can't merit salvation by good works. It only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that, that if anybody is, is struggling with that decision, that today would be the day that they would lay it all down. Lord, I pray you uh, be with us during this time of worship uh, where decisions are made. Lord, I just pray that you, you show up right now and do your business as you've done for all eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.